You're going to start with a true story by a man called uh, John Street. He was a, a conference, a, a church leader, and he's speaking at different conferences around the place. And he came to a conference um, in Cologne in Germany. And he was speaking at this conference, and it's a pretty heavy schedule. He was, it was one session after another after another, right through the day, right through several days in a row. And at the end of a long day at the conference, it was kind of half 10, 11 at night. He was exhausted. He, he was ready for his bed. He was just wiped. And there was a lady, an old lady who looked Russian, hanging around wanting to speak to him. And to be honest, it really wasn't what he wanted to do. But she said to the translator, I want to speak to the man. I need to share with him something that I've never shared with anyone else alive. So John Street said, okay, I'll meet the lady. And he sat down with her and here's how her story went. She said that I, was, I grew up in Russia. My father was a church leader. At the time when the, the Soviet Union was anti-Christianity. So our church was a secret church. They met in the woods for fear that the authorities would catch them. In my teenage years, I fell in love with a man. And we had sex and I fell pregnant. As soon as he heard I was pregnant, he abandoned me. My father was appalled that I'd fallen pregnant. And he organized for me to be sent off to a work camp so that I would not bring shame on myself or my family. I, I, I protested, but he wasn't hearing any of it. And I was sent away in a train to a work camp. The work camp had 600 men in it. And I was the only woman. My job was to work day and night in the kitchen. And I was pregnant. But multiple times for that first month and several months, I was raped. She said one day as she was traveling to a little village to get resources and food, the baby decided to come and she gave birth herself to the child at the side of the roads between her legs, she pulled the child and she threw it out onto the Arctic tundra to die. She went on her way that day and she said, from that day forward, I never forget that day. And I always think, what on earth did I do? Through a series of events, she managed to escape from the Soviet Union <clears throat> and she got to Western Europe. And there she fell in love again. And she had a child. And as soon as the child was born, the man left her. So she was left raising this child by herself in Western Europe. Uh, this child grew up. And 20 years later, this child fell in love. And she got married. And this couple had a child, a little girl. A couple of months after the child was born, the couple had a fatal car accident leaving the granddaughter to be raised by the grandmother, who is the lady we're telling the story about. <clears throat> they travel to America, and while they're in America, the granddaughter goes to a church meeting and gets gloriously saved, meets God. Her life has changed. A few months after that, she's sharing her faith with her grandmother, and her grandmother, after all those years, she's now 70, gives her life to the Lord. 
and experiences God. So here she is. She's been coming to this church now in Cologne, Germany for several months, best part of a year. She's been growing in her faith. She's a new believer. Her granddaughter's brought her to faith. But there's a pain in her soul. There's an ache in her heart. And she's been living with it for about 50 years. And as she's telling this story to this conference speaker, she's not looking up. She's looking down at the floor and tears are rolling down her face. And as she finishes, she lifts up her eyes from the floor and stares straight at him in the eyes and asks him a a critical question that has plagued her for 50 years. And the critical question is this. She asks, has God been punishing me for what I did in killing my baby? Is there really any hope? It's a pretty brutal story. It's a true story. And that might not be your story, but you might have equally brutal stories. Many of you have. Some of your stories look very different to that, but you're asking the same question. See the stuff that's been happening in my life? Is God punishing me? Is this sequence of events because of that thing? It's a big question. It's a question that a bunch of first century believers were probably asking. Is God punishing us? And I'm going to take you in the Bible to the dialogue that a writer to the book of, to the people, we don't know who they were, we don't know who the writer was, it's called the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, this writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes the book of Hebrews to some new believers who are going through some serious stuff. And they may have been asking this question. And we're going to find answers to that big question. Is God the one who's punishing us in these verses? Let me give you a bit of the context. We're going to read from chapter 12. We'll get there in a minute. But chapter 10 tells you about their lives. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, you see how these people, having just become believers, were going through some real rough times. They were being persecuted They were experiencing the confiscation of property, as it was in the early days, if you're a Christian, often that happened in the Roman Empire. They were experiencing attacks and mob lynchings and some martyrdoms. And actually, historically, what they were going through was the early stages of the Neronian uh, persecution. Emperor Nero, that vicious man, it was under his persecution. These Christians were starting to experience the early days of that. Now, we, we know where that went. It went to public crucifixions. It went to Christians being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. That's where it went, but these Christians are experiencing the early stage of this. And it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, the indication is, do you know what? It it, it might get worse for you guys. That's the indicator in the book. Hebrews chapter 11 comes to that famous chapter about the heroes of faith. It's like the hall of fame of the Bible, and it goes through this list of people, great people of faith who did this and who did that and who did this. But in the middle of it, what you discover is also there's a bunch of people in there. Some of them were cut in two by, by a saw. Some of them were killed by the sword. Some of them were stoned to death and martyred and, and killed and executed and, and lynched. And, and it says they refused to give in. They were people of faith. And then it comes to chapter 12. And chapter 12 then focuses on Jesus who went through suffering and refused to give in. That's what we're going to read. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who's that? Well, it's talking about all the guys in Hebrews 11, all those great heroes of faith who just refused to quit when things were really tough. Since we're surrounded by what a great cloud of witnesses, let us not throw off, every, let us th- let us throw off everything that hinders us 
and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance. Say perseverance. Perseverance. The race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now it's talking about Jesus, how he's a hero who endured. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. So here's the writer writing to a bunch of people who potentially might lose heart and grow weary. And he's saying, look at the heroes of faith, chapter 11. Now look at Jesus, chapter 12. Look at him. He went through the cross. He endured it because for the joy set before him. And it says that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Verse 5, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. The true, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Now, we know they didn't always do the best job. But folks, before we jump on our parents and say, uh, 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 typically they did it as they thought best. They may have got it wrong, but they did their best. As they thought best. Uh, But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Oh, wow. I mean, lots of stuff in there. And we're going to answer the question. We're going to come to it. But do you know what? To answer the question properly, I can't just give you glib answers. We're talking about a major question here. And it needs to stick with you. I can't just give you something and then you go away and you face a few challenges and you're going to start down it unless there's a real foundation to what I give you. Unless I give you a bit of backdrop to what I give you unless I give you a bit of biblical theology and insight into the truth, and then you're not going to budge from it. So the question is, is God punishing me when you're going through stuff? So let's zoom out a little bit, and then we'll come back to these verses. Let's zoom out and look at some big questions like, why is there suffering? And let's look at it from the Bible. Well, I think, let me give you five reasons why there's suffering, and I see it in the Bible. There's five causes. Let me just sum them up for you. There's you, there's others, there's the devil, there's the world, and there's God. Five reasons things happen in your life. So first one is you cause your own suffering. Now, you know that's the case. I mean, I could give you lots of Bible verses, but you know it yourself, right? You're just a numpty, so am I you just did stuff, and you got some consequence for it, okay? It's not the Lord. It's not the devil. It's you, all right? You were stupid. So, like, you you break the law, and you get a fine. Oh, it's the devil. No, it's you. 
you broke the law. You got the fine. <clears throat> now, that's humans causing you to suffer because you've been stupid. Some Christians are stupid. Some Christians present their Christianity stupidly, and they suffer for it, and they call it persecution. No, it's stupidity. That's not true persecution. There's a difference. Also, you suffer because of your sins. So, God punishes sin, okay? Now, we're going to come to the bigger question in a moment, too. What about believers? Does God punish believers? We'll come to that in a minute. But God does punish sin. And we also see that suffering is a consequence of your past. Now, listen, some of you, you have painful consequences from your past activity. The stuff you did and you know it was a mistake, and even though God has forgiven you, you're still carrying a limp because of it. You're still having to live with the consequence of your activity. And you know that. Some of you know that oh so well. You wish you could turn back time. You wish you could do things differently, but you can't. You have to live with the consequence of the decisions you made, and therefore you caused your own suffering. And God has great compassion for you. Second cause of suffering is others cause suffering. People hurt people. That's a fact. You've hurt people, and people have hurt you. And do you know what happens when you become a believer? People hurt you because you're a believer. The Bible calls it persecution. It's exactly what was happening in Hebrews. In fact, the Bible's really, really clear in this, that if you're really walking with God, the likelihood is you're not going to be popular with everyone, not because of anything other than you're an authentic believer. That's tough, but people will cause you to suffer. Thirdly, the devil causes people to suffer. Now, that comes in many and varied forms. Sometimes it can come in the form of sickness. Now, I'm not saying all sickness is directly caused by the devil. Maybe you got a cold because you didn't put a jacket on. It wasn't the devil, okay? Right? You're in Scotland. You need to wear a jacket in Scotland, okay? But also, maybe the devil did something in your life that caused you to get down physically. You know, sometimes when Jesus healed a sickness, he addressed the demon before he healed the sickness. You notice that? guy was bent over, the lady was bent over double, and he healed a back problem by casting a demon out. You think, well, it wasn't the wardrobe, it was a demon. That's weird, eh? So, it's not, it's not always as black and white and as straightforward as it looks. So, sometimes the devil can cause suffering through sickness. Sometimes it can be through the manipulation of people around you, and whether they realize it or not, they cause uh, inflicted of suffering. Remember, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That's Peter. No, well, Jesus perceived that Satan was speaking through Peter, his close friends. You know, the devil can undermine you and through the manipulation of people around you. And I'm not saying you should be paranoid or looking for the devil under every car, but some Christians do that. I'm just saying, I'm giving you a reason. We're looking at reasons here. There is a manipulation that's taking place in and around your life, and especially when you're in a ground-taking moment in your life, especially when a church is in a ground-taking season as a church. There will be manipulations taking place. There will be attitudes being stirred in you, which is not God's stirring. So the devil wants to cause suffering. Also, the devil can manipulate nature against you. Remember when Jesus was in the boat and he sat up and said, he rebuked the wind and the waves? I thought God was behind all the wind and the waves. Apparently not that storm, because Jesus wouldn't have rebuked. He was addressing something going on. Remember Elijah? There was the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. There was the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
there can be satanic manipulations of the elements and the nature around us. Fourthly, the world causes things to happen. Now, the great theologian Forrest Gump taught you this. He said, stuff happens. Stuff happens. We're in a fallen world. We're in a world that's decaying. Stuff happens. Earthquakes happen. Uh, there's thing, you know, er, volcanoes happen. Tornadoes happen. That's what happens when humankind got it wrong right at the beginning. Everything under our care fell into disrepair. The fall of man affected the fall of everything. And therefore, we're in a broken world where earthquakes and such like are the norm. Stuff happens. But then here's the fifth reason. God allows suffering. This is 5.1. I'll come to 5.2 in a minute. 5.1 is God allows suffering. 5.2 is God causes suffering. But let's start with God allows suffering. We believe that God is sovereign. Now, I could just give you those five reasons why things happen in the world. You, others, the devil, the world, and God. And we can have a very simplistic view of everything. And we can say whenever anything bad goes wrong, oh, it was the devil or a person or something. When everything good happens, it was God. And we have a very simplistic view of everything. But the Bible doesn't just give it that simple. It is that clear. Those five factors are there. The Bible's clear in that. But there is another layer that runs over the top. And that other layer is the sovereignty of God. Because the Bible teaches us that nothing happens in this earth unless God allows it to happen. Now that creates in us a tension and it creates in us confusion. But I hope that in this journey, I won't be able to answer all the questions, but I hope I can give you a hope-filled way of operating on a way forward that the sovereignty of God gives you great hope and confidence rather than give you dread and misinterpretation of his motives. So there's another layer on top of those five reasons, and it's the sovereignty of God. Let's take an example. Let's take one of the greatest crimes ever committed, the cross. Acts chapter 2, 23, it says, <clears throat> this, this is Peter addressing the crowd in Jerusalem, many of whom were involved with the mob lynching of Jesus. And it said, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So we see two things going on there. We see wicked men crucifying Jesus. That's what he said. He's speaking to the crowd. Many of them were involved in it. You guys were involved with crucifying Jesus. But then notice what he also says. He says that God allowed this to happen. He deliberately planned this, and he knew about it in his foreknowledge. Now, that messes with your head, but both exist as true. So here's my question, and this is the big question. Was God's part in the cross wicked or loving? Because that really does change everything, doesn't it? So we know that wicked men, their part in the cross was wickedness. In fact, Satan had a part in the cross. He put it into Judas's heart to betray him. We read that in the Gospels. But was God's part wicked or loving? Two verses for you. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
John 17, 24, Jesus speaking to the Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. So here's the amazing truth of the cross, that on the cross, God was allowing that to happen with no wickedness. Not even, I mean, the word wicked can't even come close to God. God in his heart had love for his son and had love for the world. And on the cross, even with his love for his son, he didn't intervene in the suffering because of his love for the world. So there was a bigger plan that Jesus understood that his suffering would accomplish, not just because it it wasn't just about him. He understood it's about them. And it's exactly the same when you're facing stuff. When you're facing stuff, you don't see the full picture, but you need to understand never is God in any way involved in a wicked plan coming from his heart. Never. God and his sovereignty always is a loving God. Furthermore, our God is unlike any other religion's God. The true God is a God who suffers. And that's amazing. Um, James Jones, in his book, Why Do People Suffer?, tells a story about a school that had collapsed. And it was a tragic situation where this school had collapsed, killing all the teachers and most of the kids in the school. And uh, as as people were, uh, one one kid was rescued from the the scene of the accident and literally was struggling for his life. And he was rushed into the hospital and there he was taken into surgery. And he was in surgery for hours and hours, seven hours in surgery. And outside the room, the mother of the child was pacing up and down the floor, hoping that her son would live. After seven hours of surgery, the son died. And instead of sending one of the nurses out to break the news to the mother, the surgeon went out to break the news to the mother. And he told her, I'm sorry, we, tried it. we did everything, but your son died. And the lady just broke down in absolute hysteria. And she started getting so aggressive and so impassioned. She started hitting the surgeon and pounding his chest, but he didn't stop her. He just let her hit and he held her. And eventually, I mean, after absolute rage, she took out on the surgeon. After a while, as he held her close, she just ended up being embraced by the surgeon and sobbing in his arms. After period of time had passed, the surgeon himself started sobbing because the surgeon himself had lost his son in the same disaster. And you see, when you're going through stuff, you have to understand that the same stuff that causes your stuff is the very reason that the Christ was crucified. And the Father understands intimately you're suffering because he has suffered since the creation of the world. His heart was pains the moment rebellion came into the world and people turned against him. And his heart was pains in agonizing despair as he saw his son on the cross 
the one with whom they had been united for all eternity and always have been and always will be, the Trinitarian God. Now, here is the Son of God on the cross paying the price for our crimes in our place. And the Father feels your pain. The Father sympathizes with your anguish. Here's 5.2. Not just that God allows suffering, but God causes suffering. God causes suffering. Here's how. He punishes and judges sin. That's how God causes suffering. So that's never with ill intent. It's because He is a holy and amazingly good God. That's why He is a judge. He couldn't be good and not judge. Even be, I mean, if you, if, you, if you had a criminal court case going on and the judge just said, oh, just let him go free, you'd say you're a corrupt judge. Well, how much more the moral, the God of the universe. God couldn't be good if He wasn't a judge, and God causes judgment and punishment to happen. And it's so severe because He is seriously holy. Eventually, undealt with sin results in eternal banishment called hell. Horrendous, but the Bible's clear on this. So, you see it in in the Bible. You see in the Old Testament, God judging unbelievers. You see Him judging the world in the flood. We know about Noah who survived the flood, a man of faith. And we see God judging Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin and the pride that was in that city. And we see God judging in in so many ways, and we see ultimately God judging in hell. We see the predictions of that through Jesus' life and in the book of Revelation. We also see God judging believers. But this is interesting, and please notice this. We see Ananias and Sapphira being judged by God. They drop dead in Acts 5. We see a guy who's having sex with his mom. I mean, this is like, this is like the Jeremy Kyle show. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul brought judgment, said, no, kick him out of the church. Commit him to Satan. And then we see people causing divisions in the church, 1 Corinthians 11, God's judging them. Now, let me just draw a distinction here. These are the examples of God judging believers, but as far as I can see, it's to do with believers who are sinning against the body of Christ. It's an important distinction. So, you're, you're gossiping about the church. First Corinthians 11 says you'll drop dead. <laughs> Best not gossip, right? You're, you're damaging the church of Jesus Christ. You're damaging it in various ways. There's going to be judgment. But what about your sin against Him? And this is where I think there's a huge difference. See, God... I believe, doesn't punish sin against him if you're a believer. And here's the, here's the question. The question the woman asked, she looked up from weeping, and she says, has God been punishing me for what I did in killing my baby? <clears throat> if you as a believer are saying that God is punishing me for my sin, as a believer, you are contradicting the Bible. Because it says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that the punishment that has brought us peace was upon him. That's what it says. That when Jesus went on that cross, when he died in our place on the cross, he was taking my punishment that I deserve, not just for my past sins, 
but my present and future sins, all dealt with by Jesus on my behalf. So if you're saying, no, God's punishing me for my sin, then you're saying that Jesus' death was not sufficient. That's heresy. Best not say that. In fact, if God was punishing you for your sin, you would be in hell. Because that's what punishment for sin looks like. Sin against God. God's not punishing you for your sin if you're a believer. Why? Because Jesus was punished in your place. Let's go back to the Russian woman. So what did the man say to the Russian woman? She told him all this stuff. She says, is God punishing me for what I did to my baby all those years ago? Big question. And John Street was trying to figure out, what do I say to this lady? It was already late at night. He had 101 things he wanted to say to her. But this is what he said. He said, okay, open your Bible with me. Open to the book of Romans. So she opened to the book of Romans. I said, turn to Romans chapter 8 and read for me verse 1. And she read this, and I want you to read it out loud with me. She read aloud, one, two, three, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he said, and do you know who wrote that? And she said, no. And she said, it was Paul. And, she, and he said, and do you know who Paul was? And she said, no. And he said, well, he was a murderer of Christians. And then he said to the lady, now let's read it again. So she read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And she was weeping because she realized the truth. And he said to her, I want you to memorize that verse. I want you to memorize it and get it deep in your soul. So she went home that night, and the next day there was the conference continuing, and she came back that next evening. <clears throat> and she came in, she was glowing. And he said, did you memorize the verse? And she said, yes. And she quoted it to him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he said, and do you understand it? And he said, I understand it. I understand that God is not judging me because he judged his own son on my behalf. That because of that, I'm not judged. I'm forgiven. I'm righteous. A year later, John Street contacted the local church pastor and just see how things were going. And in the conversation, he said, and how is the lady doing? And he said, she's doing great. She's involved with our women's ministry and she's getting alongside women who have had real rough times. Her past is now helping give other people a better future. Because God has a habit of turning things around. Right, so is God punishing me? Well, if you're an unbeliever and you're alive, he's not punished you yet. (laughs) I'd suggest today, seriously, I'd suggest today, not because of fear of punishment, but because you know the scale of the love that was towards you in that act on the cross. If you're not saved, go for it. Run to him. Give your life to him. 
if you're a believer, then you are a very warped and heretical person if you dare say, God is punishing me, because that undermines the cross, because that says that he didn't take my punishment. He did take your punishment. So, let's go back to the verses and then look at this. Let's go back to the verse. What is the Father's purpose in suffering? Hebrews 12, 5 to 8. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not take, make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his sons. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. So the believers are being persecuted in this church. They're going through stuff. They're saying, what's going on? <coughs> Who's the cause of their persecution? Probably the Romans, sinners. They're being persecuted. Human beings are the cause of their persecution. Who's got a bigger agenda in their suffering? God. God's not the cause of it. Now listen, God's sovereignty doesn't make him to blame. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that he is accountable for the wickedness that's being done. Otherwise, that would make God wicked. The people who are accountable for these Christians, who, who, whoever writing Hebrews is writing to, the people who are accountable for the crimes against them are the people doing the crimes. God will hold them fully accountable. And therefore, you couldn't say God is doing that, because then you'd have to hold God fully accountable of a crime, and He would cease to be God. It's the wicked people causing the persecution who are accountable for that's happening. But God in His sovereignty is allowing it to happen. You couldn't say God caused the persecution. You could say God allowed the persecution. John Piper said this, and I think this is a really important quote. He said, the evil and suffering in this world are greater than any of us can comprehend. But evil and suffering are not ultimate. God is. Satan, the great lover of evil and suffering, is not sovereign. God is. And this is good news. You are not abandoned to the mercy of the raging things that are going on around you. It's good news. The Bible here says, verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by the Father. In other words, this is not a judge who is punishing you. This is a father who's teaching you and training you. And that's altogether different. And that's, when you're going through stuff, I mean, anyone ever gone through stuff, Right? As you're going through stuff, and whatever that stuff, whether it looks like this stuff or whether it looks like other stuff, when you're going through stuff and stuff happens, five reasons they happen, we've looked at that earlier, whatever the source of the stuff, whether it's people, the devil, the world, whatever it, when you're going through stuff, it is not a judge judging you. That was dealt with 2,000 years ago. It is a father who wants to teach you something. And that's good news. And he is sovereign. And he uses everything. And this is amazing. I love this. Romans 8, verse 28. 
And we know, in fact, you can read this with me because it's such an exciting verse. Ready? One, two, three. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. This is amazing. God causes all things, see all things, all things, all five of those areas, all things to work together for the goods of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. What the devil dumps in your life to cause a stink, God wants to use as fertilizer to cause some good things to grow. He's eco-friendly. He uses everything. He uses everything, everything, even the stuff the devil threw at you, even the stuff that your worst enemy threw at you, even the stuff that just happens. He uses it. So, you're not under a judge who's wanting to punish you. You're under a father. In every situation, he wants to teach you something. God allowed Job to suffer, and that was rough. It was rough. He didn't cause Job to suffer. That was the devil. Read the Bible. But he allowed him to suffer. James 5.11 says, you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. So, what did God cause to happen? Well, the end bit of Job, that's what God caused to happen. The beginning bit of Job is what the devil caused to happen. But God was over the whole thing. He had an eye in the whole deal. God's uh, what, what the Lord finally brought about, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Look at the end of Job, Job 42, 12. The Lord blessed Job, sorry, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. God blessed Job. That's what God caused to happen. The devil's agenda for Job was wicked. God's agenda for Job was loving. You think Job was a stronger man after all that? I think so. I think so. And then you see David's, and you look at David, and you look at Joseph. You look at Joseph, look at all the hardships he went through. It prepared him for greatness. Did God cause lies and deception and deceit and betrayal to happen? No. Did God allow it? He did. Did God see to it that all things turn for the good? He did because he's God, and he looks after his kids. He's not a judge wanting to punish you. He's a father. He wants to teach you a lesson in this moment because he loves you, and that's amazing. And you look at David's. Goliath was one of the best things that could have happened to David. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. Some of the big problems in your life could well be with the hand of God be one of the best things that could happen to you even though they weren't designed that way, even though that wasn't the intent of the one who sent it your way. Your father wants to teach you a great lesson and help you come out to a different place. Some of you, I mean, some of you have said that. I know people who've, who have come out of prison and are in the church. They say, do you know what? Prison was a great moment for me. I really got a chance to think things through. I dealt with my addiction. I'm in a much better place. Was it God who inspired you to rob that bank? No, it wasn't the Lord. I don't care what you say. It wasn't the Lord. I know it, I know it all. You thought you pulled it off and you praised the Lord after it. No, it wasn't the Lord. 
But did God turn it for your advantage? He totally did. Some of you would say, you know what, that, that hardship I've gone through has given me a compassion for people who are going through that stuff. I would never have had that compassion. I would never have had that empathy. Did God cause you to go through that? That was designed against you. It wasn't God. Did God allow it? Yes. Does the Father want to teach you something? Absolutely. He's a great redeemer. So what's his motive in this? Well, first of all, his motive is you're loved. Verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. It's like, you know, when fathers are disciplining their kids, they say, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Well, one day the son turned to the father and says, yeah, but it's going to hurt you in a different place. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, when you're disciplining, you don't discipline because you don't care. Now, let me just say, however, some of you, honestly, some of you may have had fathers who disciplined you out of rage and anger. That's not what the Lord's like. True godly discipline is done when it's in love and genuinely desiring and longing for the best in the child. That's how God disciplines you. And it's an expression of his love. It's also an expression of you're accepted in his sight. Verses 6 to 7, it says, He chastens everyone. He accepts his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? You need to understand that God is not an uninvolved father. He is an involved father. The very fact he's involved, the very fact he's turning it to your advantage, tells me so clearly he accepts you. And the very fact he was willing, also willing to turn everything to your advantage, is to accept you. He has a bigger plan. What's his bigger plan? Verses 10 and 11. God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The Father's agenda is not just that His kids have a happy, easy life. That would be a very shallow agenda. And I want my kids to have a happy, easy life, but I've got a bigger agenda for my kids than just that. I want them to reach maturity. I want them to become all that God has designed them to be. I want them to reach their potential. And why is God allowing things? And why is God working with you? And why is God turning it to your advantage? Why? Because He loves you so much, He accepts you as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you as you are. So He wants maturity to develop in your life. There's an amazing verse in Deuteronomy 32. And it's a, a verse that describes uh, an eagle. And the verse says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Let me read you, that's Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Let me read you verse 10, just a bit before it. Verse 10 says, he, is a sh- he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye talking about God's care for his people. You're the apple of his eye. Then it goes on to say, like an eagle, the Lord stirs up. It's like the eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. What's what's the picture here? Here's the picture. You see, when an eagle way up in those Middle Eastern areas would build uh, its nests up in the lofty heights. It would start with big branches, tough branches, because they need to structure these big nests. Some of the nests were three meters in diameter. They need a structure. So thick branches, tough branches. 
But then what they would do is the eagle would then get soft cladding like fur from rabbits or if, like leaves and softness to create inside of the nest. So it was a soft uh, environment for young chicks to grow up in so they wouldn't be scraped or dashed against the tough sticks that made up the structure. So the, the chicks would get hatched and they would be in the nest and they'd have a happy little life. And then, then one day, Mother Eagle would fly along and she would flap her wings. You see film clips of this. You see the Mother Eagle flapping her wings over the nest. And, and they're looking at her thinking, what's mum doing today? <laughs> and then mum does this weird thing. She starts ripping apart the nest. She's like, flip, mum, you've lost your marbles. Mum is starting to rip apart the nest, taking all the soft stuff aside. This is my, this is, they, they had this nice little nest to the point where the edge of the nest... And then they have to all of a sudden, instead of lying down in the comfort, they have to hold on to the structure and have to get their balance and feet. Like, what's this all about? Our world is turning upside down. Mum doesn't love us anymore. And this is how God wants you to understand how he treats his people. Is it because he doesn't love you? And then what happens? She kind of lets them get over that. Then days later, she reappears and starts flapping her wings showing those big wings as if she wants them to get something. These wings. Wings. (laughs) You have them too. And then she starts nudging those chicks to the edge of the nest, and they're thinking, no. (laughs) But she is. She's pushing them over the edge, and they flip over the edge, and they hurtle through the air, and they're thinking, no, mum's killed me. And she's, they're flying through the air and they're trying to flap and they can't make it. But then just before they hit the ground, the mother catches them and returns them to the nest. And she's thinking, thank you. But then she does it again and again and again. And until eventually one day those chicks figure out, wait a minute, we've got these as well. And then they learn to fly. Now, if you were just chickens then God wouldn't really just care that much about you reaching your potential. But your children of God, you were designed to soar. And it's because your father loves you, he might push you out of your comfort zone. It's because your father loves you, he allows stuff, he didn't author it. That would make him wicked, and he ain't that. He is loving beyond any type of love you have ever comprehended. And in his love, he will allow you to go through things. So here's the deal. You've seen people go through things who didn't turn out better. They turned out bitter. I've seen that as well. Some people go through things and come out better. Some people go through things and come out bitter. What makes the difference? It's in the verses. The first thing is endurance. Verse 1 to 3 and verse 7. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. The Bible here is saying this, when you understand the big purpose behind what you're going through, it will give you an ability 
to endure. Jesus, it says, for the joy set before him endured. He understood the outcome of the cross, and that enabled him to have endurance. When you understand the purpose, it says endure hardship as discipline. When you think, ah, God's wanted to teach me something here, what's going to happen? You're going to be able to endure. You're not going to lose heart and grow weary. You're going to get through it. You're going to be able to have an endurance to get through that stuff because you understand the bigger purpose. Second thing is this, submit to the Father. Verse 9 says, moreover, we all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? 1 Peter 4.19 says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Submit to Him. Submit to Him because you trust Him. Submit to Him when you're going through stuff just because you you trust Him. Submit to Him. I'm not saying submit to it, but submit to Him in the middle of it. Don't bow the knee to the tough time. Resist that. Hate that. Want nothing. I'm not saying, oh, well, God's given me this sickness. Just let's enjoy it then. I'm not saying that. No way. We would be doing running healing services if we believed that. I'm serious. No, you fight that. And you're going through tough times. It's not like, oh, yeah, oh, that's great. We've got to, the pastor says we're going to say this is great. No, no, it's horrible. It's hideous. Reject it. Persecution. You don't go, all right, I don't want to persecute me. I need to learn some lessons. You know, you, no, you resist. You run. If someone tries to attack you, run away. But you submit to God. You bow the knee to God. You resist the stuff going on. It's like the bench press. You know, if, if you're in that gym and, you're, and you, you put the weight over you, and I went to the gym with Grant earlier last week, and he's stronger than me, and he, he pushed me, and I felt it all week, oh, all over my body. I was really sore. But we, you know what we did? We, we didn't just take that bar and just say, all right, here we go, let's enjoy the gym, Ka-dunk. and just lie there. Because if we just lay there, we wouldn't get stronger. It's as you push against it, you get stronger. It's as you push against it, it's that resistance that makes you stronger. So I'm not saying submit to the thing, oh, I submit, like a bar on your chest. It's as you push against it, but you submit to God. You submit to God because you trust in Him. Paul and Silas in that prison in Acts 16, they were singing songs to God. They'd just, be, they'd just been whipped. They'd just been you know, thrown into a dirty, dark dungeon. They'd just been rejected, and they were singing to God. They were singing to God, saying, oh, thanks for this dungeon, and we really love that whipping. That wasn't their song. They were saying, we think you're amazing, God. And they were singing a much better song than I sang there. <laughs> they were singing to God. They were singing to God because He was amazing, even though their circumstance wasn't. And it says that trust in God was there, that God turned it for their good. Corrie ten Boom, who survived the Holocaust in the Second World War, she said this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Okay, let's pray.